and welcome to the Auto Movie Podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe, this is Martin Spain, and you're listening to the greatest podcast in the world for cars on screens of various sizes. We are to podcasts what the Robin Reliant is to cars. <laughs> What's a old plasticky and falls over a bit? I've been watching some of the old Top Gear stuff. I've been going down some YouTube rabbit holes, and that bit of Top Gear where Jeremy Clarkson keeps rolling the Robin Reliant is one of my favourite things of all time. Is that because it was set in the north? There is a bit of that. Um, What I really love is that they just play with all of their own constructs and completely undermine all of them. There's a bit that isn't in the YouTube clips, and I'm trying to find it. I should find it on um, Motor Trend before it vanishes, where he's going, so today we're going to do an epic journey, and he's got this standing next to a map of Europe. And we're going to go from here in Doncaster, and then he reads in basically the same spot and goes, to here in Sheffield, which is like 10 miles away. I, I must admit, I have no idea. I know Doncaster is somewhere in the north, but I don't think I've ever been there, so I don't know where it is. My geography is terrible for places I don't, uh, I haven't been to. But I know the episode you mean. I was meaning to rewatch the um, the Middle East special just because I was reminded of James May's little uh, Christmas ditty talking about his car. <laughs> With a wonderful cut, just as about uh, just as he's about to say shit. <laughs> anyway, anyway, um, how are uh, you doing? It's been a while since we've podded. Uh, in the meantime, I've been to Scotland and back uh, with some friends, and I've promised to give a few shout outs to people who have been listening to the podcast, long time listeners, long time supporters. So I want to give a big shout out to uh, Matt Biggs and Chris Frew, who have been very kind about this little podcast that we do, and who. Oh, at least one of them is a big keen fan of drinking a lot of tenants. <laughs> in fact, all Scots people drink tenants, and we can't figure out why. I tried a pint of it to see what the fuss was about, and it's it's tasteless shite. But this is the same country where basically they managed to distill bog water and turn it into whiskey, and they drink Mad Dog Twenty Twenty. Speaking of which, what are you drinking tonight? Ah, see, tonight's show is brought to you uh, in association with the Balvenie Doublewood Seventeen. How about you? I've got the Willets. Uh, is it small batch? It's their standard bourbon, which comes in. People uh, can't see this on the podcast, but look at that. Is that the coolest bottle you've ever seen? It looks like a bottle of cognac. It's basically a glass recreation of a pot still. And oh, <laughs> that's a good noise. The ASMR people are going to be loving this. <laughs> <laughs> it's also got a little bit of a car track connection because in the last series, they chucked a bottle in a lake that Tyler Hoovey was stuck in. And that was a Willits bottle. So if you want to know... Oh, bollocks. <laughs> if you want to know what a, a Willits bottle looks like, watch Series 3 of Car Trek. Speaking of which, as we record this, the finale of Season 4 has just finished. And I don't know if you've had a chance to watch it yet. I have. I watched it earlier on in preparation for this recording. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It might even be my favourite episode of The Five. Mm-hmm. Car Trek 1 came out not too, almost a year ago now, right? It was it was in lockdown and it was that time when everyone was having a bit of a mental wobble about being stuck indoors and they came out with this thing they'd managed to do and I remember it being absolutely what I needed at that time, some kind of just comfort TV, Top Gear type, three guys in cars having fun. And this one, this, uh, what is it, season four? Yeah, feels like a real 
return to that original Car Trek season one because they're on a road trip. Ed Bolian's bought a flood car <laughs> with some issues. Because of course. <laughs> because of course he has. And I, I really, really enjoyed this whole series. Um, thing I enjoyed about this one was the kind of consistent car theme of you've got to buy this make. In this case, it was Ferrari. And that opened the door for some epic level cheating from Tyler Hoover and particularly <laughs> from Ed Bolian. Um, but it's... Uh, you know, we've been watching this over the last week and a half, and we have a a, a private signal chat with uh, with another friend, which which we post into, and the, the the chat is called "One Car, One Price Go," which is that kind of back and forth texting. On every now and then, we go, "Okay, you've got twenty grand budget, and the car has to be a great GT car for driving to Le Mans." Go, and you know, people would post links from Auto Trader or Piston Heads or wherever, um, which is a lot like the kind of Auto Tempest service thing that that those three are promoting at the end of every episode and we've been watching this and all of us going oh, really quite fancy a ferrari 599 now <laughs> it, it's it's the car from that series that i covet the most the 456 uh which uh, tyler hoover buys is a you know a, a steal and seems to be the smart money buy but the 599 is just the want it's just the want even if they are you know, more than double the budget of what they were supposed to be spending <laughs> but i don't know this is the thing they they had a, a, an ostensible budget of like 35 grand uh, and only one of them bought a ferrari for 35 grand <laughs> and i think it's no spoiler to say that you can't get a good ferrari for 35,000 pounds but it, the whole the whole show has this series felt like the cinematography stepped up a gear? Yes. There's way more epic car-to-car shots of the, the cars doing what you see on Top Gear an awful lot, which is the kind of, you know, three of them are on a road, switching positions... There's also some spectacular drone work as they are alongside the cars yes. as they're going down the canyon to give the sense of scale. And, you know, it's not as flashy as you might get from a Top Gear or a Grand Tour, but it is bloody good for YouTube, bloody good <laughs> for free. And I was really impressed with the the presentation and the, the editing of this particular series. And it, like I say, it came away with me going, Let's say I had a budget of 80 grand to buy a Ferrari, which in Ferrari world is not a great deal these days. Yep. For 80K, what are you having? You've got a choice. You could have a manual 360, which feels like too much money for not enough car. <laughs> you could get a leggy 6112 Scaglietti, which feels like a great car, but probably a bit pricey. And you can get some bottom of the barrel 599s. I know exactly what car I would get while I'm finding it on Piston Heads. <laughs> why, don't, why don't you regale our listeners with your love now of the 599? I love the 599 because it is an Enzo engine in a massive GT. And so you've got an absolutely bonkers thing that will do 205 miles an hour, will outrun probably anything on this on the roads short of McLarens still. It it's it takes that soap bar styling of the four five six and makes it less Ford Proby. <laughs> it's got flying buttresses. It's got great wheel choice. If you've got, the, it's got like an upscale. I think as 
as standard. You get these sort of upscale challenge wheels that you get on 360s, but bigger. I, I don't really know how to describe them, but they're they're really cool. Um, the split you can get the um, the split rim sort of five spoke with a zillion bolts in them but i'm not sure they look as good as the challenge wheels um the gto wheels are the ones that you want because they look awesome uh, you know it i just i love it as i love the idea of it now if you speak to people um who have owned them or driven them in the uk they'll say they are too big for uk roads and possibly a bit too fast and the gearbox is a bit old now and doesn't give you that double clutch zippiness and to that i say i don't give a fuck I want one. I want to drive one. And the chances are quite slim that I ever will, but that doesn't stop me from from doing the classic thing. And the proof, of course, that it's a great show is that not only have I been looking for 599s on the Piston Heads Classifieds, but I have also ventured into 456 territory because you think, well, if it's such a bargain for for the kind of budget they're supposed to be spending on on this series, then... Are there any around? And the answer is no, there are not. <laughs> Certainly no <laughs> gated manuals. But anyway, I thought Car Trek Season 4, a, a an uptick in quality over the earlier seasons. I don't think they've quite captured that magic of the episode where they're cocking about and doing mechanicking in Tavarish's shop, where Ed is just playing to the camera and messing about <laughs> and they're, they're wrenching on their cars. That, I think, is lightning in a bottle. I don't think they'll ever recapture that. But this was extremely good. I really enjoyed it. I really, The interplay between them gets more and more natural as they do it. Um, they've clearly conned on to the fact that one of them needs to have an absolute rust bucket because that was one of the key <laughs> things that you, you get in later Top Gear challenges is the cars need to be workable to be able to do the challenge but equally it's much more interesting if things go wrong no one wants to watch a challenge where they say three reliable cars cross the continent without <laughs> incident i i found my ferrari and the way that i found it on piston heads was i searched for ferrari and green because green is a great overlook color oh by the way did you know dms automotive can remap your 599 it doesn't have turbos, so that's not going to do it a great deal. I mean, it's got 600 and... What is it? 604? 611. 611, okay. From standard. And they can get it all the way up to a heady 655. Yeah, I have a friend who had a DMS remap two days before he was due to go to Scotland with us. And on the morning of the drive to Scotland, his car threw limp codes within an hour of drive oh. of his house. And he had to turn around and go home. So oh, no. whilst they do have a fairly good reputation, I don't think I'm going to be taking my 599 to them for a remap. <laughs> so my Ferrari is, and I will, I will send you a link to this after the show, it is a... Manual 360, it's 75,000 pounds with 42,000 miles on the clock. This is the British Racing Green one, isn't it? You've sent this before. It's it's light British Racing Green, but it's a bit darker. It looks kind of almost black, but then I think when the sun hits it, it kind of goes a kind of forest green with a hearing aid beige interior. But still, it's also the carpet, because it's green, looks like AstroTurf, but that's the one I would go for. We have a link to Haggerty, who have got some info on one of the orange Supras from the original Fast and the Furious. 
It's a stunt car, one of eight Supras that were prepped for filming, and it's done a bit of stunt work. It's done a bit of hero car work on on the screen. It's been given a, like a certification of authenticity by Craig Lieberman, who is the car consultant on the first two movies. And this car was in the first movie and then got modified and appeared in Too Fast, Too Furious, and has since been restored back as it appears in the original movie. That is to say, with a big wing and the orange paint job and some suspect body kit <laughs> it, it it's of its time certainly it's not how i would want my super to look but it's <laughs> a screen used car driven by paul walker and they reckon it's gonna fetch about five hundred thousand dollars which seems steep but the prices for classic japanese cars have gone so bonkers of late that you know when when super impressa 22b's and mitsubishi lancer evo 6 tommy max are fetching a hundred thousand pounds so like hundred and thirty thousand dollars then a screen used supra could pretty easily be five hundred thousand dollars it's just insane the photos make it look pretty clean and if you were uh, you know if you were obsessed with that movie when you were a little younger and you've come into some money from your tech startup then maybe you do want to buy this (laughs) (laughs) i i wonder if this is the car that was in the continuity error in fast one because there's the famous bit where when Dom does the barrel roll after the train jump, so he rolls over right to left, the Supra goes left to right underneath him, and you can see, because they've got the roof panels out, you can actually see the roll cage in the final film. Right. Between kind of the um between the windscreen and the B pillar, roll hoop, whatever it is. Um, there is a video that we'll put in the show notes of uh, about the car um, with Craig Lieberman detailing the stunt car's provenance. So maybe this is the point where it says, yes, it's this bit, and look at the continuity <laughs> error, nerds. Um, <laughs> I don't think I've ever noticed that bit. I'm too busy going, why has Dom's car just done a barrel roll? <laughs> Welcome to Fast and Furious land. This is true. This is very true. But yes, I think there's there's not been an awful lot of news, uh, and we're doing a bit of a freewheeling pod edit here. You may be able to tell by the fact that we are dawdling and going on tangents. Um, <laughs> we're not doing any movie reviews this week because we can't be bothered. Well, actually, no. It, well, we, we can always find something to talk that's about. Actually, that's not true. You're right. What we're doing is taking a... a, a we're, we're nicking an idea from Matt Farah of doing a kind of like... <laughs> a, 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 what he calls a crew show. Um, but we're just going to mm. call the, the, the chat show. <laughs> not like that. We're not going to... Because we... Because we just haven't come up with a better name. Yeah, yet. we haven't no, really I, agreed on what we could what we could watch. We've got lots of movies in the backlog, but we decided that we would just kind of sling something together because it's kind of fun to just go back and forth about things. So, no reviews. Also, now that the pandemic-y things are kind of maybe working themselves out, there is a little bit of hope on the horizon. You know, there has been a lot of motorsport on over the past sort of two or three months. And I've watched quite a lot of it. And <laughs> yes, so have I. It's, it's really interesting to actually watch what's happening in different formulae because we've had Extreme E, which we need to talk about. There's been Formula E have had a couple of cracking races, including one on the full Monaco Grand Prix circuit. 
I did see some clips from from Monaco. The last one I watched was the race, like a double header, I think, before that. Where, in Rome? No, not Rome. I'm not sure if it was Rome. I can't remember what circuit it was. Uh, and I, I kind of tuned in. I think it was the race after they'd had the ridiculous one where almost everyone ran out of battery because yeah. the, the rules say that if there is a safety car after a certain period of time, then the organisers can just take away all of your power and on the last mm. lap you have to crawl around because somehow that is good for the show and promotes people's confidence in electric cars. Whereas what it actually did was make the whole thing look what, what it is, which is a waste of time and a rolling joke. <laughs> so... The 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 race in Rome, which is the one with the um, with the battery farce, because frankly it was. There's one. Th- see, that's one thing that I don't get with Formula E is that it's a limited formula by, by physics. You know, you can only make a, a battery so big and keep the weight down and get that much power out. So they have, um, you know, they have the attack zones and they have stuff like that. With any other formula be it Le Mans, be it F1, be it IndyCar, if you have a safety car period and a lot of cars are fueled expecting safety cars in certain races, then you have the same amount of energy to get to the end of the race, but with that yeah, the, the thing that really bothered me was the fact that they they have this rule that lets them take energy away from the cars, which seems ridiculous. If you mm. have a safety car period that lets them use half the energy they might ordinarily definitely doing, then why not let them finish with slightly more than 0.1%? The point isn't that you use the whole of the battery's energy across the lap. The point is to go, hey, you know what? EVs don't need to give you range anxiety. And mm. taking energy away from them just makes no sense to me it it should it should be if you want the racing to be authentic and if you want to represent what evs are like then when you're hitting a traffic jam in your ev on the m25 someone doesn't come in and suddenly start siphoning off power from your battery so that you go oh i used to have 50 miles of range but now i've been in a traffic jam for a bit i've only got 10 miles bugger yeah, it it's makes ridiculous. no sense. And Formula E seems to be full of these ridiculous rules. And this is its first year as an official FIA World Championship. And yet, manufacturers are leaving in their droves because they've realised that no one watches it and it's not good for any kind of road relevance whatsoever. So I will say that I think that rule in particular is ridiculous. I think if you look at the onboards of how much lifting and coasting a lot of those cars do because they don't get lighter like a fossil fuel car does they're the same weight at the start they are at the end the amount of lifting and coasting that they do is immense if you have a race with a big safety car period and you suddenly go right you've now got 20 percent of your battery left and five laps great Go. Yeah, it should be hammer down, you know, no lifting and coasting, full on maximum attack. You'll get great racing. The cars will be performing to their limits, which is good. You know, in isolation, when you watch that Gen 2 Formula E car go round, Mario Franchitti did a video for Motor Trend a couple of years ago. Sorry, not Mario. Mar- Mario, <laughs> Mario, Mario Franchitti. Marino Franchitti. Yeah. Yes, sorry. Marino Franchitti did a video for Motor Trend a couple of years ago. Um, 
of him driving the car when the Gen 2 was just coming out. And it looked fast and it still it Ooh. looked manoeuvrable, but somehow when you put it with their TV presentation with a whole pack of them wandering around a circuit, lifting and coasting like grandma, and you add to that the terrible Formula E camera angles, which are of the worst kind of Bernie Eccleston era F1, nice and high so you can (laughs) see the sponsors with no sense of speed. And ally to that the fact that I think in the UK you can only watch Formula E via the BBC iPlayer which is... Or Eurosport. I haven't looked at it on Eurosport, so maybe their bit rates make it look better, but iPlayer just looks like you're watching it through a potato. And it just looks slow and boring. And I know that the drivers are doing impressive things, Mm. but the problem is you can see so much other single-seater motorsport where it looks fast and the camera angles are such either mounted on the cars or in the curbs or on around the circuit to illustrate the level of speed and formula e is not about that for some reason they they have this high camera Ooh. angle you know from a platform or it's a locked off thing because all the cameramen have gone to the pub <laughs> and so, it, it, the, the presentation of it sucks i think the actual car itself is pretty clever and i think the, if they change the rule set slightly uh, they'd have something i really enjoy it when they go to real circuits so obviously going to monaco is a big deal that rome one i'm still not convinced i the one i watched was rome because it did seem to be like valencia. a real circuit maybe it was valencia, it was valencia uh, yeah. yeah and that's at least a real motor racing circuit with real corners, camber, and so on. The kind of anonymous car park in a Docklands kind of street circuit Mm. that they tend to do an awful lot was what really put me off Formula E because it's just a bunch of corners with 90-degree turns, and it must be really frustrating for the drivers because you can't get any kind of flow. And for the viewers, you've got no idea where they are on a lap. It could be anywhere. And Mm. it could be, you know, the Formula One circuit they did in Caesars Palace car park back in the 80s. Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) Uh, And what they're going to do for Miami in 2022. (laughs) Oh, God, they are, yes. But anyway, I... Uh, so what I would say to you, here's your homework for the next show, and I'm going to put it in the show notes. So we are going to, I'm going to pick you up on it on the next oh, show. God, you're going to make watch, me watch more Formula E, aren't you? I am. Watch the Monaco race, but don't watch it just after you've watched F1. Don't watch it just after you've watched some Monaco historics. Watch it just after you watch an old man in a hired Ferrari 430 <laughs> trundle round the lap at <laughs> five miles an hour in Monaco morning traffic. And then it will look quick. Exactly. Here's the reason why. If you watch the historic Formula E and F1, which I think all occur within a month, they all use the same camera positions. So the the Formula E looks, in terms of angles and things like that, like F1. Right, okay, that's a good point. That's much better. They've got low angles, so you can see the cars going past. They kind of make an interesting noise, you know, the, the sort of EV whizzy noise is is kind of fun, and I'm, I'm interested to see if they could get rid of the need to, to coast as much. I mm. think that would be if the drivers were able to attack more, you know, it's the same in all sports. F1 drivers can't attack all the time because the tyres are made out of chocolate. Um, And, (laughs) you know, Le Mans drivers can't do the same because they have a certain amount of hybrid boost they're allowed per lap and so on and so on. 
but it, allowing them a bit more chance to to attack more would greatly increase the spectacle of the mm. racing which would greatly impre- increase I think the sport's overall standing. I'm not quite sure what Ooh. Formula E is for right now. It seems to be some way for manufacturers to kind of soothe their guilt complex because I'm not sure what else it does. It doesn't try to make motorsport green, which is what Extreme E is trying to do. Uh, did you hear Will Buxton talking about this on The Week? I have listened to it. it. I, I can't remember. I have heard other people talking about Extreme E and in not very kind terms. I watched, can, can, can I watched just half say? of the first race, which was somewhere. Um, I didn't see the first <laughs> round. I saw the stuff that was on, on like the Sunday and I watched um, the race that had Jensen Button in it and, and was won mm. by the first turn because as soon as the cars got past the first turn then the car in front just threw up so much dust and sand that nobody could do anything else but slow down because they couldn't see where they were going so extreme e i think has the potential to be brilliant because rallycross is exciting and suits really well an ev format trophy trucks are amazing and exciting and dakar trucks are amazing and exciting and rather than racing at Lydon Hill or Mallory Park, they've basically taken this whole circus to some fantastic-looking bit of the world and done this amazing thing where it's not just... It's kind of rallycross crossed with a rally raid. So you kind of get the spect... Spectre? Spect, not spectre. What's the word? Spectacle. Spectacle of the Dakar... With the closeness of and television friendliness of Rallycross, so you think, okay, this is great, and then they go, we're going to tell you all about how we're shipping this round the world on a ship that's powered by, I don't know, kale, and you're like, I don't care, <laughs> I don't care, why, how are you doing this? I don't care that you're trying to save the planet. I don't care the fact that you've shipped all of this stuff in, you know, recycled polystyrene containers, yet you've got Zach Brown, who I'm sure has just jetted in from wherever IndyCar race he's, uh, he was at last, because he goes to everything. So that man is must be on a jet constantly. And I'm sure Jensen Button didn't canoe his way back to civilization. It's just such an enormous own goal. Will Buxton said that their command centre was... He described it as like being like robot wars, which is this weird little, in the world of social distancing, this tent where there's like a group of people all huddled around monitors, like you get in no other motorsport. Yeah, it, it, it felt very rusty. I think it felt like they'd never done a trial run, which I suppose they hadn't. And so I know that there were problems with the rules around pit stops and people got penalised for no apparent reason. And... um yeah, the the distancing didn't seem to be actually distant. The whole concept of extremely pitching up at some exotic far-flung location and then hippying on about how they're cleaning up the beaches and saving the whales and so on feels very incongruous. I, I, I yes. feel like the concept of a net zero carbon emission motorsport is a good one, but yeah. you need to make it feel like you're not preaching and you need to make it feel like you're not doing this just because 
it seems like something you should be doing. Um, now, there are some big names involved in this. We obviously mentioned Jensen Ooh. Button has a team and is driving for that team, <clears throat> Nico Rosberg. Um, like, like his dad used to do rallycross as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. and I really enjoy the the coverage of it. I really enjoy the fact that they have a mandatory um, female co-driver not yes. co- not co-driver um, they share the driving so there's like one yeah. stint with the ma- with the male driver and then they swap over and they they, they hand over to the female driver it, it might feel artificial and you might go oh god virtue signaling all that kind of thing if you're one of those people you can fuck right off right now <laughs> opportunities for women Ooh. in motorsport are tiny and anything that lets them get center stage alongside some of the biggest names in motorsport is a good fucking thing so if you if you're one of these people that thinks it's ridiculous having people you know forcibly having to hire women drivers then you know you can suck my balls but i think there's a whole bunch of stuff to be done with the format i think there's a whole bunch of stuff to be done with the 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 way they run the races because the one i saw was like literally decided in the first corner the first guy to get to the corner was then able to chuck up so much dust that everybody else fell like 30 seconds behind one another because they couldn't see that's not racing in in, in like three laps yeah it's it's, it's ludicrous that's not racing the the idea is sound and i do like the fact that the truck is pretty cool i mean if you if you haven't seen the latest series of top gear um freddie flintoff drives it in wales and it's bonkers and it's clearly very quick and it's very capable and you wouldn't know that if if you didn't hear it you wouldn't know that it doesn't have a screaming v8 under the bonnet and it it works really well the racing works really well there's just some things to iron out the whole we are a a bunch of racing hippies that are going to go and clean up every location Mm. we go to and we came here on a boat that's pired by unicorn farts just doesn't work (laughs) for me in any way and like you say i don't really care if you want to make a difference do that stuff on the quiet and release a report at the end of the year that says here's Mm. what we did to offset our travel around the world don't shove it front and center in my face because i'm going to feel like you're doing it because you have to or that you're Mm. faking it but I am looking forward to the next race for that kind of more than I am for Formula E just because it is a pretty good visual spectacle and they have some great drivers involved. And that's not to say that Formula E doesn't. This is one of the things I do like about Formula E, um, weirdly, is it's a way for really good drivers who may not have made it into F1 to get paid. People like Sam Bird and... um, Burn? Alexander Sims, um, Jean-Éric Verne, uh, Antonio Felix da Costa, all of these people, a good portion of whom have fallen off the Red Bull, uh, you know, talent ladder True. effectively, yeah. or you know, did a couple of stints, a couple of seasons in in Toro Rosso as was, and then got fired by Helmut Marco because you know he's a oh wanker. God, Scott Speed can do it. <laughs> well, yeah, there are some exceptions. Some people just shouldn't be allowed to race. Although that's it, <laughs> you know, he was he was. Um, like World Rally, not Rally Cross or whatever the American version of Rally Cross. Um, he competed in this in the uh, VW Beetle. He and Tanner Faust were on the same team, and he won yeah. like two years in a row. So he's not entirely talentless, um, because well. Tanner, Tanner Faust is a pretty good peddler. Um, but clearly, he found his level was Rally Cross, not Formula One. Yeah, I, I heard his level, Scott Speed's level, was doing um, sim racing and basically punting off everybody else. Ah, my Gran Turismo technique. (laughs) 
other motorsports I've been watching, of course, IndyCar's been running for the last couple of months now. Yeah. And I've watched, I haven't watched all the races. I've watched some of the races. I forget that it's on my Sky subscription, but I have watched some of the races. Um, the last one I watched I, was a good month ago now, but I have noted recently that they've run the Indianapolis road course and yep. F1 refugee Roman Grosjean did rather well there. He did spectacularly. It was so he took pole. This is running essentially the indie road course that F1 fans are familiar with. So it's the banking, banking into the main straight all the way down, and then it's stand on the brakes, twiddly, twiddly, left, twiddly, right, twiddly, and then it's just a bunch of horrible twiddly in the infield. <laughs> it's basically running around the car park and then back onto that final turn. It's it's. Uh, I think there's a golf course in there. It's saying it's not a car park, but yeah, it's. So the course itself suited him. It clearly worked with his uh, with his skills, with his experience, with the car. The car was running well there. What I, I, I don't want to focus on that because his performance was great. He could have won. Um, VK thingy Bobby, who did win. Venus VK. Well, Renus VK. <laughs> Which is well just a visit. ridiculous name. That's not a name. V, VK that's is the a, thing I drank at the Students' Union yes. back in the day. <laughs> I think, was it Will Buxton that said it sounded like an Alcopop? Because his name really does sound like an Alcopop. <laughs> but anyway, yes. But the, that isn't his name. That is a nickname. It's His name is Long and Dutch. So for the American audiences, he's just... Um, He's just reduced it to VK. Speaking of American audiences, there was a great couple of tweets, one of which said that the NBC Sports crew had five commentators who pronounced Romain Grosjean eight different ways. Oh, uh, yeah, I didn't see that, but I imagine that Romain, Romain Grosjean. Yes. One, Grosjean. One of, these is, one of these is a lettuce, the other is a racing driver. Yeah. It's not hard, Romain. Romain Grosjean. Yeah. Um, but yes, the, the thing that gets me about IndyCar... And it's probably the thing that I find most difficult. And it's worth pointing out, if you are not English or used to English or uh, British F1 coverage, is that probably for at least 15 years now, we don't have adverts during the race. Before... After, We've never had not, adverts. Not oh, no, that's true. Actually, ITV did do adverts because they famously, famously cut yeah. away from that. Was it 2006 battle between Schumacher and Alonso where, yes. <laughs> in Imola where, where Schumacher's desperately trying to pass Alonso and then ITV go, shit, we're really going to have to do an ad break. We're just going to cut now <laughs> at the most inopportune time and had a, a flood of complaints. But yes, you're right. Uh, we don't have adverts. Even Sky kind of cram a bunch in beforehand, but they run the mm. whole race uninterrupted, which is the only way it's doable, as far as I'm concerned. The IndyCar coverage, the thing that frustrates me most about it, it's, well, there's a few things. The cars are great. The drivers are great. Circuits are great. I, I love watching IndyCar because the cars look like such evil handfuls all the time. Oh, they do. They do. And particularly now they've got the aero screens as well. Like so, basically, they've got the halo, but they're filled in with yeah. um, with windscreens. The thing that, that that kind of impresses and irritates me in equal measures is the commercialization of IndyCar is phenomenal. There'll be an onboard shot of the driver, and there will be, and I'm I'm not joking. There will be eight logos around the halo. There'll be on his, you know, on the top of his helmet, either side on the headrest. 
wherever the camera's pointing, somebody swoops in with a handful of stickers and just covers <laughs> everything. And then they go, each camera is sponsored by... Yeah, the onboard like, camera brought to you by <laughs> Ned's. And it's the team's sponsor. And then it's like, you know, we're now riding Takuma Sato with the floorcleaners.com camera. And you're just like, that's uh-huh. right. Um, I remember when, do you remember the fuss around Alonso at the Indy 500? And that might have been mm. the first time I really paid attention to the Indy 500. I like watched all the, all of it rather than tuning in halfway through. And I remember at the start of that race when they're kind of doing their warm up, you'd go to this onboard camera and they go, oh, we're riding on board now with Jimmy Vassar and his. <laughs> You know, who hasn't driven in a new car in like 10 years. <laughs> it's just, there's my brain casting around for someone, I don't know, Alexander Rossi, who we brought to AJ you AJ Foyt. <laughs> Mario Andretti. <laughs> um, I, where it's sponsored, you know, by like Cheeseman's Foot Odor Cream or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> they are such prosaic brands. Or like, and here we're sponsored by the US Army and suddenly from nowhere a brass band will start playing or something like that. <laughs> You're right, it's so rampantly commercialised and yet, you know, budgets in IndyCar are tiny. They're like $6 million for the year or something Ooh. absurd like that and drivers make nothing unless they do the Indy 500 and that's obviously split between the team and the crew and the driver. And But then also you get... Not only is everything in the broadcast sponsored, so you'll have the Burger King Whole Shot Award, you'll have the Pit Cam <laughs> brought to you by Maynard's, you've got this that's brought to you by Cheerios. Everything is fucking sponsored. Then I was watching one race at, I want to say Barber Raceway. Yeah. And they come back from a commercial. Barber Motorsports Park. That's the one. They come back from commercial and they show you this glossy montage of all the exhibits they've got in their on-site museum for some reason. Then another race, I think it was actually the Indy one, they come back from a commercial, and because NBC are also showing some horse race, the commentators suddenly start showing the odds of the different horses that are coming up on the the race later that day and discussing them. They do that thing where they, they kind of show, it's not quite picture in picture, but they kind of shrink the screen so they can show something else alongside it. And because we're watching this in the UK, and if you watch it on Sky... They just basically the the commentators just stop talking for about five minutes, and it's just it's just like an awkward silence. So so that's that's the thing with with Sky because they take essentially a world feed which doesn't exist. Yes, they don't have like a it's Crofty like, and Brundle equivalent. The commentators, the the yeah, the NBC Sports commentators. So they just stop talking, and we're left with this kind of uncomfortable, usually well, an on board or something, where it, you've no idea if all the commentators have suddenly died. <laughs> But it's not even that, though. You get the outro announcement, then it fades to black. So you're kind of like, has another member of the royal family suddenly died? (laughs) And then, like, somebody in the control room just presses the button, and it's like, clear, clear, inside, clear. Yes, it's the... Where you're just getting kind of team radio thing. It's really incongruous, and it does totally break up the watching experience because... If you're going to show, I mean, I'd kind of like them to just give me the NBC feed. I'm sure there's some kind of legal reasons why they can't show those ads in the in the UK or whatever. But it would feel more natural than mm. the kind of half and half world we have now. And I must admit, coming from Sky Q with F1 in 4K, whatever mm. they shoot IndyCar on feels like that NTSC video quality you used to get from <laughs> watching Friends in 1994. It's not the same. And 
I don't know, again, is it camera angles? Is it camera technology? I don't know, but it feels, again, like you're watching something through greaseproof paper. I think if we did get the adverts, sorry, I was just thinking about this, like if we do get their adverts, because some of them just make no sense to us, where it's like, coming up this Wednesday on NBC, it's our Super Wednesday lineup. She, you know, <laughs> she's a teacher. He's a horse. They're living together. It's, you know, you're like, what? <laughs> Only on eight. 9 p.m. Central. I'd like them to put the whole thing on ESPN 8, the Ocho. <laughs> thing is, it's just... The other thing that gets me as well, if you watch the the race to watch the race, that ITV thing is exactly there. So the reason why the ITV thing happened was that they contractually had to put so many adverts in during the race, and it looked like something was going to happen, and they basically held off for as long as they possibly could, thinking something was going to happen. If you watch... The Indy 300, and you should, because it's a good race. The Indy 300, is that the, the little one around the car park? Yes. Right. It, I didn't know it was called course. the Indy 300. That makes it sound yeah. really rubbish. <laughs> it's like it's like Petit Le Mans, which I think sounds so much more adorable. Small Le Mans. <laughs> this is the whole thing of things sounding better in other languages. It's true. It's true. <laughs> like the parabolica sounds like a great curve rather than just a description of the arc the curve takes. Or the aqua minerale chicane. The... Or eau rouge, which is like dirty river or something. <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, if you watch, it's like 10 or 15 laps at the start while everyone's kind of shuffling around. It's exciting. Then they go to commercial. Then they come back and it's like the gopher sticks its head out and goes... <gasps> No, nothing's happened. Quick, another commercial. Oh, and it, no, another commercial. Oh, pit stop window. Right. So now we'll wait. Everyone's done the pit stops. All the orders shuffled out. Commercial. You're like, oh, for God's sake. You can't However, get into a rhythm of watching it. I remember that from the ITV no. days where you'd get really frustrated at the the, the race. You, you couldn't settle into a rhythm of watching it. And uh, it's amazing to kind of think back that way and go, wow, we all thought that it would be the end of F1 when Sky bought the rights. Mm. But actually, I think Sky have been really good for f1 there was a fun article on uh, motorsport.com about free to air for formula one versus pay channels and laid down some pretty good arguments in terms of the kind of promotion that the the pay channels like sky do for formula one versus what the bbc did which was fuck all none <laughs> And so, I, I, I mean, I get it, and I'm, you know, I'm fortunate to be in a position where I can pay for Sky and pay for 4K, and, mm. and, and not everybody's in that position. And in other countries, obviously, like the US, you can get F1 on the F1 TV app, which we can't get in the UK because Sky have got the rights to like 2023 20, or 24 or something. But mm. I, I mean, I pay for live timing, so I get access to the commentary track. I've never actually watched the F1 on the over the top app what do they call it ott is that over the top over the top yeah, yeah. so i've never watched that but I, my friend andy lives in california and uses it all the time and i think he gets effectively the same thing we get on sky he gets the world feed which is crofty and brundle anyway so i one thing i really like about f1 and what they're putting on i've never watched the race through them because also i have sky now so it's crofty and brundle but they put a lot of their content onto uh youtube so they do like the pre-race, they do the post-race, they do their equivalent of Ted's Notebook. They do. I tell you what they do do, and they, I think maybe they've started um, adding it back on more. They get um, Thingy Palmer, 
Not Jonathan Palmer. Julian Palmer. Julian Palmer, yes. Not, the, not Jonathan Palmer, the fastidiously <laughs> uh, lawn-obsessed uh, former F1 driver. <laughs> no, they get his son, Julian Palmer, who I always rated as a, as a driver, and I don't think he got a fair yeah. crack at F1, but he does a fantastic analysis of key moments in the race, bringing you know his experience of racing reasonably current F1 and single-seaters in general. Um, he's an extremely good on-camera um, analyst and he's very articulate and I think a, like a year ago they started doing that more in the app for just F1 TV subscribers only and you'd get a little clip on YouTube and I happened to notice uh, a couple of days ago that there's actually a longer clip on YouTube of more of a broad analysis which I think they maybe have gone back to given the vociferous complaints because <laughs> everyone loved it and they used to get like hundreds of thousands of views it used to be universally positive comments about how insightful Julian Palmer mm. was about an incident and how unbiased his his opinion was but there's there's loads of great stuff that that Formula 1 do outside of just the coverage you know Will Buxton's um pre-race stuff has always been fantastic and I haven't I was going to listen to the commentary because I was up in Scotland when the Barcelona race was on I meant to install the app on my phone and then Bluetooth my phone to my car stereo as I was driving home and listen to the over-the-top commentary from there. And Mm. I forgot. And so what (laughs) I ended up doing was nailing my 4G subscription and just streaming the whole thing via SkyGo and putting my phone on the passenger seat and just listening to Crofty and Brundle, which was pretty interesting. Um, I spent Mm. a lot of time shouting at the steering wheel, getting the (laughs) predicting wrong tyre strategies and so on. But it it was quite an illustrative process of seeing without the pictures does the commentary for Mm. pictures still make sense unlike something like five live which is done purely for radio does a tv commentary work when you can't see the pictures and the answer is absolutely it does really does and that's where for all that david croft can be excitable and sometimes cliched and sometimes way over the top he's still telling the story of a race and and if you happen to do what i do often on some races which is get up and wander around make a cup of tea go out into the garden for a second pop back in it's rare that there's a race that engages my attention so fully that i never leave the sofa and having mm. that kind of commentary really really works so i, I mean sky's coverage is is second to none as far as I'm concerned. I'm just concerned. That these are the things I worry about. There are a lot of people on their payroll, right? Sky. Yeah, so I'm like, how much is Karen Chandler invoicing them? How about Anthony Davidson? Does Anthony Davidson have enough of a good job? Is he able to afford his mortgage now he's not racing for Toyota? <laughs> these are genuine things that I worry about. But then I remind myself, Anthony Davidson's, you know, he, he does a lot of sim work for Mercedes F1, so he must yeah. be doing all right. But these are genuinely things I am concerned about. You know, <laughs> what does Ted Gravitz get paid? Now he's been doing this, what are his career prospects? Is he, is he angling to get into the commentary box? In all seriousness, no, the one thing I want to say about the F1 coverage of this year, I, I am the kind of F1 nerd that will have, on a Friday, my iPad running mm. next to me while I'm working, and I will listen to, if not watch, the practice sessions. And this year, mm. F1 has been running what feels like an experiment in putting new voices in the commentary chair. So for the first couple of races i think we had natalie pinkham sky, sky f1 sky f1 have been yeah. running um natalie pinkham doing the, the the like the lead comms for practice sessions alongside mm. either karen chandok or anthony davidson or one of the other sort of rotating rosters like paul de resta and so on and 
she's really good. Like, really, really good. She was excellent on that. And I, all I could think was, thank fuck we've got somebody in there to, to kind of break up the once more massive sausage fest that is F1. And they ran, similarly, they did Jenny Gao, I think, in, in a couple of um, mm. sessions, who was good but not as good as Pink's. So I really enjoyed that little thing that they're kind of evolving towards. So this is the big thing for me, is that I think Sky have basically gone into F1 with the same approach that they do for other sports. So they have a presenter who... Simon Lazenby is very good, but he could present anything. You've got commentators who are very good. I mean, Brundle is... Yeah, he's the gold standard for... He's the gold standard. Croft is very good at doing the the kind of the pants on fire bit. Yeah. But then... Aside from Ted Kravitz, they have this thing of like, well, what we really need are old F1 drivers to tell you what it's like. Deep bench of them though. They've got Damon Hill who crops up sometimes, Nico Rosberg who, and and you know, love him or loathe him, and a lot of people are not very keen on Nico Rosberg, but he has incredibly recent relevant experience of racing in F1, and he's very articulate in five languages. (laughs) Yes. So you know, not that you want to feel inferior, but you know, you know what though. I I find whenever they get Damon Hill on, he's not a great pundit. It depends he's, what he's talking about. Sometimes uh, he can be really good. Sometimes not. He's not. He's not great. They've got Jensen Button who comes along and is is typically sort of effortlessly charming. Has a great rapport with almost all the drivers on the grid, particularly the more senior drivers like Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, Danny Ricciardo, and so on. Because he's genuinely kind of just probably mates with them anyway. And in my head, they're all in a WhatsApp group where they send ridiculous pictures and stupid memes around. Um, but you know, he's he's got that easy charm. But underneath it, there's an intelligent brain that's asking the questions that you want to know the answers to. And he's not afraid of asking a difficult question because mm. he knows he can get away with it in a way that perhaps a commentator can't and you know that's pretty impressive and he doesn't do all the races but he doesn't have to Mm. they've got such a great presentation scene we are so spoiled and it's the reason why IndyCar can seem a bit clunky and a bit uh, cheap by comparison because there's not the same same money washing about in IndyCar as there is in F1 Mm. it's not a global series in the way that F1 is. I, I love it, but it is a niche motorsport apart from the 500. Um, and, and, it, and it shows in the, in the coverage. And I do love it. It is a nerd's motorsport. <laughs> F1, particularly after Drives to Survive, you know, there's, there's people in, that I work with who are suddenly coming out as F1 fans that I would never have pegged mm. as F1 fans. And they've got into it because of Drive to Survive. And I can't really imagine a Drive to Survive for IndyCar. Um, but if it were, it would be done in that American style that would be like horrible reality TV and I'd be really upset. <laughs> um, but we've, we've banged on about this for, for long enough, I think. Before we move on, one thing I have to talk about. With F1 TV, I think the thing that makes it the most exciting for me is the lineup. So if you watch any of the stuff that's on YouTube, you will see Will Buxton is effectively the old man of the group. He's the experienced hand at the tiller. You've got people like, um, yes, I've got the, the thing here in front of me. So you've got, <laughs> you know, Alex Brundle doing commentary along with the guy whose name Jakes. I've forgotten. Alex Jakes, who's also really good and has proper talent for the future. Rosanna Tennant is really good. Sam Collins, uh, David, oh God, David 
Alorca? David Alorca. There we go. And Lawrence Barreto. Lawrence Barreto, he's been with the F1 crew for a few years now. He's really sort of coming on in that Will Buxton. Yes, um, I had noticed that he's kind model. of being groomed as a sort of uh, not presenter of the future, but he's kind of getting more experience being in front of a camera and rather than just being what I think he was before, which is just a, a written journalist, right? I think he was a written journalist, and he, he then did the, um, you know, the, uh, the press paddock pen, yeah, and the paddock yeah. pen. So yeah, but, you know, I've, I've, I think their stuff is really, really good, and they're approaching it in the right way. And so, if you haven't seen any of the F one. Um, stuff the Formula One channel on YouTube is definitely worth a subscribe. It can get noisy. Yeah. There'll be an awful lot of clips after the race, some of which you're going to want to skip, some of which you might want to watch. There's some interesting stuff they do with Team Radio where they play out um, stuff there. But now we're going to shift on to regular show formats, the videos and channels, and I have some incredible links into this where I have chosen, and I'm going to jump into this first. Normally it's Chris that gets to go first, but go for it. I'm going to go first because it, it really ties into this. My video clip is a thing that F1 have been doing with the aforementioned Alex Brundle, which is called Good Lap versus Great Lap. And mm. they did one of these uh, as a sort of an experiment where they show side by side two laps of the same circuit by the same driver one of which is was a, a like a good lap in, in qualifying versus the great lap that maybe got them pole or got them a particular position on the grid. Uh, and the one I've chosen is Lewis Hamilton, Monaco 2019. And I love the presentation on this. Alex Brundle's talking you through the lap with the onboards side by side and they've got telemetry. So they've got throttle trace Ooh. and brake trace. And so you're watching the video in in it's like it's not quite stop motion but they're doing it frame by frame in some instances and it does make you wish that they had a higher frame rate that they could use from the onboard so it didn't look quite so jerky but brundle's talking you through the lap and showing you where the good lap differs from the great lap and why and you can hear his expertise as a sports car driver sports car driver of some note as someone who has single seater experience and is just generally a very good analyst of driving um, and obviously around monaco time can be found in in lots of places and it was so illustrative of watching the difference between these two laps that you can't really get to a sky don't go to this these lengths on a, on a live broadcast probably because it's too hard to do in the moment and it's the kind of thing that's mm. perfectly suited to a YouTube video maybe a three a few days after the event but being able to see where on on a safe lap Lewis didn't take as much curb as on 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 the, the what they call the great lap the lap that was faster and yet you're seeing like the brake trace where brake less here but then take an enormous amount of curb and know that you have to risk it and deal with the you know, the the subsequent car bouncing off the curb and 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 bit of oversteer, but the speed you carried through is shown in the fact that you could get onto the throttle earlier, you brake less, and therefore you, you you can see the difference. And they're showing, it's almost like a a virtual representation of the ghost car you get in things like Gran Turismo and yes. and, and Forza. It's not quite that, which is something I've really wanted everyone to do, but it is as close as that as you're going to get. And it's a wonderful analysis. It's it, Brundle Jr. is on 
excitable, virtually indistinguishable from Brundle Senior form on the video. Uh, it's a really short video. It's like three minutes long. Give it a watch. It's really, really good. I'm, I'm looking forward to doing more of these. I think the one they did to start with was maybe Charles Leclerc, who is a bit of a qualifying specialist. Um, mm. But the one with Lewis around Monaco, where he gained six tenths on on his first lap, uh, on his good lap, on his great lap versus his good lap, um, is really illustrative. You get to see where that, and you can literally see where the six tenths is made up. Up, which I've never seen before where someone points out to you this is how he made up six tenths across the whole lap it's exceptional you're never going to get this level of insight um, in a live broadcast it just can't be done uh, and my channel is Roman Grosjean's official YouTube channel because I happened upon a video of him talking around how you drive a lap of Monaco and we're being very timely because we're hoping to just whiz through this with no edits and release it out before Monaco which is this weekend um, he's on a sim rig talking through a lap of Monaco and what I found fascinating about this was the insights he gives obviously map very much to what I've just watched on that Alex Brundle video but also he's on a simulator and he's driving around and then he kind of stops the car at the corner and says you know you want to use this curb here to settle the car as it's coming out of this corner so don't allow it to run oh, wide cool but he immediately then he's like hard on the throttle bangs up through the gears and the thing i found fascinating was even on a sim rig he's turning into these corners and he makes one sweep of the wheel there's none of the what i would do on a sim which is kind of turn in and go oh, bollocks i've done it wrong wind off some lock oh bollocks i've done it wrong wind on too much luck oh bollocks i'm understeering i speak from experience i went to see a friend of mine over the weekend who has a pretty top spec Fanatec sim rig with like three monitors and stuff and I did some laps of spa in a Bentley um, GT3 car and I was dreadful <laughs> terrible <laughs> even with somebody sat over my shoulder commentating telling me the laps uh, telling me the lines across that I was dreadful um, and to watch someone on what is clearly a pretty good sim rig drive a lap of a circuit they've done in real life on the sim and just sort of and here's the line for coming into Casino Square and you just it's just perfect the car is perfectly positioned every time and he's talking about how close you have to get to the barriers and he's like yeah you want to get really close to this and you think you're going to knock your front wheel off there and he hasn't and it's not like he's just wiggled the car around this is where you see the difference between like a regular driver and a formula one driver and the kind of circuit knowledge and the skill and the talent just sort of casually on display i really enjoyed it you know roman grosjean is is uppermost in everyone's minds at the moment not just because of his miraculous escape in bahrain but because he's he's gone to IndyCar and he's making a success of it which is not always a given for a formula one driver and I, I find myself fascinated by him because he's such an open personality and mm. he's he's really engaging on that. There's another couple of videos on his channel which are worth a look. So if, if you are interested in F1 and you're interested in seeing one of the lost talents of F1, it's fair to say that Romain Grosjean, at his peak, was able to deliver some pretty special stuff and the first year of Haas aside, I feel like he's just had increasingly shitty machinery that he's just not Ooh. been able to show. And he's got this reputation as a whingy kind of talentless idiot. And that's not fair. You're describing like your Pastor Maldonados and your Scott Speeds and so on. He's a lot better than that. And I'm being, yes. you know, and I'm being mean to Pastor Maldonado there, but you know, that's, that's just fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, Roman Groshan's YouTube channel really go and check it out I really enjoyed that the, the lap of Monaco on his sim rig is, is kind of like quietly impressive so do go check that out Chris what are your YouTube channels well 
just on the on the uh, Grosjean point, he did a Beyond the Grid uh, F1 podcast recently, which is a bit shorter than some of the others. Well worth a listen because you're absolutely right. He's open and honest, and hearing how he's moved to America is 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 fantastic. Um, my YouTube channels and regular listens will know we've skipped over a bit. That's intentional. We're going to end on a high note. Oh my god. The two things that we like, you and me, one, build channels, two, people who go racing. So I've combined both of these things. My video is Jimmy Broadbent and his racing career in a Praga. And if you've never heard of a Praga, and they have been in Evo, apparently, but it kind of skipped my uh, my memory. They're kind of like mini prototype things, enclosed cockpit, two-litre turbo engine. But they are doing a push this year. They are doing a really, really big media push. In fact, Roman Grosjean is their driver ambassador, believe it or not. Um, Jimmy Broadbent has gone from sim racing to real racing. His videos are engaging. His ability to commentate over... Footage of him racing, I think, is brilliant. And if you want to see somebody taking their first steps in racing, and in his channel he races an MX-5, and he does some other bits, and he does Praga testing, and he's really honest when he gets out of the car, and it's just like, oh, my God. Because um, you're going to see a lot of Praga, I think, this year as well, because Charlie Martin's racing, um, some other YouTubers who we won't mention but might have charged Praga 25 grand for the privilege of them uh, putting their <laughs> really? name in the seat is uh, racing. Oh, yes. I've not heard that story, but I, 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 I'm I, a member of a WhatsApp channel where lots of these sort of stories get aired. People who are far more well-informed and have their ear to the ground more than me <laughs> share this stuff. And I go, what? I didn't know who that was. I will confess, I don't know who Jimmy Broadbent is. I've heard his name bandied about and I'm vaguely sure he was in one of those e-racing things we all watched. Um, during lockdown one, but I, so Jimmy Broadbent became famous because he was basically a sim racer and YouTuber who lived in a shed, and uh, literally, you know, there was like the sim rig and his bed in one place, and that was like his existence. And he's gone from there. He became well known. He did some of the more prominent races. He's now doing. Um, uh, Pragas and, and proper racing and he's just a lovely bloke with no ego with you know you get this real unfiltered sense of what it's like to go go to Anglesey and somebody goes here's a small prototype running on slicks in a in a brick car race go my my channel is a little one if you like people who build and race their own cars I will heartily recommend Team Prawn Racing. And it's a lovely guy called uh, Nick Vaughan, who I have been orbiting around for for many, 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 many years. Um, what he did, he had an Audi A3 as his daily driver. He then turned it into a track car That's and that. drove it at many track cars. <laughs> Let's just pause there. It's not that he turned it into a track car. He basically pinned a wagoned it, right? He, he's basically he's got to that point now. Yes, so he has he's gone from daily driver to track focused daily driver to road legal race car, and this is his first year racing in the seven hundred and fifty motor club road sport series. So 
you've basically got the full spectrum of guy who builds his own car and does build videos and does them very well. Then him and his mates go off to Silverstone where he's racing and is being competitive. Yeah. Even in his first series, uh, first season in a car that, you know, he'll race and then sort of come home and go, that's not great, right? Out with the uh, angle grinder and the welder. I'm going to cut this out and I'm going to fit this and I'm going to do it all in my shed at the back of the school and then go off somewhere else racing. And he's a lovely bloke. He's sharing his passion. And if I, I, I like I say, I recommend it. If you, if you fancy giving him a watch, dip into his channel, find the bits that you like. There will be something in there for you. It is just a lovely little vision into somebody's passion and i think that's absolutely what youtube's for i think that's what it should be commended for but the big youtube news of the week is carfection doing a trilogy of videos with henry catchpole driving the mclaren f1 the porsche 911 gt1 strassewagen and the mercedes clk gtr all in silver I, I, I had a moment, I'll be honest. <laughs> this is a pretty big coup for Carfection. Excuse me, I'm just eating a snack. Have <laughs> <laughs> we been recording that long? Oh, God, we have, haven't we? I thought this was going to be a quick one. <laughs> I watched the first show on the McLaren F1, and my first thought was when they showed the shots of the McLaren F1 being driven reasonably spiritedly around the hill course at Millbrook was... Jesus, I would be crawling around in that weather. <laughs> it's damp, right? And you're in a car that is conservatively worth 10 million quid. No, uh, no, 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 no. Conservatively, it's worth 20. All right, 20 million quid. And he's putting load through it on the corners. As far as I'm concerned, he's insane. As far as I'm <laughs> concerned, it should be just like, here it is, it's beautiful, I am now going to pootle around in first gear at 2,000 RPM, and then I'm going to get out, and I'm going to pray that I haven't scratched something in the process of doing so. But no, there's, there's like actual tyre squirming, and it, it's moving at more than 10 miles an hour. At this point, the McLaren F1 is a... It's an asset. It's not a car. So yeah. to see one moving and being driven and and so on is rare and surprising and wonderful. I've really enjoyed watching that. I haven't watched the the new one which came out today for the Porsche, which I'm I'm quite interested in because you really don't see these driven. I don't know that no. there's another YouTube review of one anywhere apart from maybe some owner somewhere going, hey, I have lots of money, check out my car. Um, and then there's the Mercedes uh, CLK GTR. It's telling a it's telling a story as Henry's best videos always do about a period of car racing where road cars were taken to extremes. And the McLaren KF1 mm. kicked it off by just being a really good basis for a race car. It's really light. It's got a really powerful naturally aspirated engine. And it's going to go racing because the rich people who bought them want to go racing. And then it seems like Porsche then went, well, if you're going to do that, then we're going to take the piss and we're going to take what looks vaguely like a 911 and then throw you know, a bunch of R-Tech bodywork at it and then mercedes went aha whatever you can do my friends we can do better and basically took something that vaguely looked like a clk and then took all the bodywork off of it and stuck most of a le mans 
prototype on it. Mm. And, and I find that fascinating because I didn't watch GC1 racing when it was happening. No. Um, I was probably still in my rallying is the only true form of motorsport phase at that time in the kind of late 90s. And so I would have watched some Formula One. I would have watched rallying. I, this stuff would have passed me by. I wasn't into it at all. So this is telling me about a period of motorsport that I've just missed out on completely. The the first video on the McLaren F1 is just a wonderful to see such a car being driven in the way that it is, you know, around somewhere like the hill course at Millbrook, which we've both driven, and it's yep. pretty challenging. There's a there's an awful lot of rough road, adverse camber, and and difficult corners to take, and to see it being driven is just wonderful. And there's two other cars which are. I don't know if they're a degree of magnitude rarer than the F1. There are less than 100 F1s made, but even so, I've still been to Goodwood and seen a McLaren F1 in the flesh. I have never seen a GT1. I have never seen a CLK GTR. It's also worth saying as well, as well as the car faction videos, and if you like reading Henry's words, because he is a great writer, he's also now working for the Intercooler, which if you like long-form, well-written articles is well worth your your time and your your money. Um, yep, costs a fiver, can- and they're not paying us, but uh, they are sort of journalists that we really enjoy. I paid them yep. via Patreon before. This is cheaper than the whatever it was tenor I was giving them a month via Patreon. Uh, Patreon, Patreon. I never know the. The, the right thing but you know the, the, the intercooler is an app that you get on your phone with high quality motoring journalism on it it's worth the 4.99 a month it's it's yeah. relatively speaking it's the price of an expensive coffee uh, and there's some great stuff on there there's uh Karun Chandler writing day. some really good stuff uh it's slightly more long form than the stuff you'll have seen on the intercooler's instagram feed worth a subscription 100 percent. there's some really really good writing on there it is so yes, also on, on the DK Engineering channel. So DK Engineering are the dealer who have got all these cars either in storage or for sale. Because I think the CLK recently came through their through their showroom and has now been sold. They have done what they call brilliantly user guide videos for the CLK and the um, 911 GT1. So if you want to know, for example, how to take the front clamshell off a 911 GT1 or check the fire extinguisher system is properly working and in your um, in your CLK GTR they go into that sort of detail it's like if you want to know how to like top, top up the washer fluid in these unicorn cars <laughs> these are the videos to watch they are if you are a proper car nerd and you want to just pour over this thing that like you say I've never ever seen one in the flesh anywhere Ever. And there's a good chance you never will because if there's if there's that few 30-something cars, there are easily 30-something car collectors and nerds who will buy them and then store them and take them... What is it, the line in Ferris Bueller? He just wipes it every now and then with a diaper. <laughs> yes. That's what they'll do. These might crop up in some cars and coffee thing somewhere or turn up at a caffeine and machine event if the owner can be bothered. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, we're pretty lucky to have been at an event where there was somebody generous enough to bring along their McLaren F1 so we could have a quick nose around it. But I never thought I'd see one of those, let alone one of these. And maybe somewhere like Goodwood, Porsche have one in their collection they might roll out and you might see. But they're so rare that videos like this are probably the only exposure you're going to get to them. 
But anyway, on on that bombshell, <laughs> it's time <laughs> to end the show. What has been a little freewheeling, and we'll see how much of that ends up in the edit. I think I may chop our bit out because we're now running at an hour and 38 long, which is by far and away the longest show. If you would be so kind as to leave a lovely review on your podcast repository of choice that would really help in getting us beyond 34th in latvia for automotive podcasts which i think is where we are now i think we made as, as high as Sounds about right. number seven in poland at some point for automotive <laughs> podcasts but we're, we, we could do with a little bit more of a boost so if you would leave us a lovely review and and share and enjoy with all of your friends and and get more subscribers leave us five stars all that kind of good stuff that would be really helpful we should start doing this guilt minute stuff more <laughs> But yes, please do tell everyone about the podcast. Uh, if you have any thoughts on what we've been talking about, then email us podcasts at automoviepodcast.com or get us on at automoviepod on all of the usual social feeds. And I can't think of a clever sign off, so I'm going to throw it to you. <laughs> well, I am going to go and enjoy the 400th episode of the Motoring Podcast, who are live streaming as we speak. So, congrats to them. Thanks to you all. See you next time.